Amen. Be seated, please. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Revelation 22 as we round out sermon series here on the, the apocalypse, on the revelation of Jesus Christ dealing with um, the now and the end. Revelation 22, God's Word written for you. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs, sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Let's ask God's blessing upon His Word. Father in heaven, we do ask that You would give life and light to our minds. Again, Your Word is perfect. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Give us love, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I think this time of the coronavirus has been a learning opportunity for the people of God in, I would imagine, more ways than we can count. For those that have had their income challenged, it's been an opportunity to learn reliance upon God. For those that this has been a source of great fear, It's been an opportunity to reflect on God's command to be anxious about nothing. But I suspect for many of us, one of the greater lessons, and I would imagine certainly for the children, this has been an object lesson in impatience. An object lesson in frustration connected to not getting the things I want when I want them. An object lesson of being forced into a position where I cannot do the things I want to do when I want to do them and I am required to be patient. I mean, how many of you children want to go play with your friends but haven't been able to do all of the things that you were accustomed to doing? How many of you adults are just eager to go out and get a meal and sit down in a restaurant that somebody else has prepared and somebody else will clean up after? How many are just eager to get out and about and to go shopping with no Niggling doubts in the back of the mind as to what is okay or safe. We're impatient. We're ready for this to be done. I think this week was a major turning point in the temperament of just America as a whole. We're ready. We're ready for the life that we think is the blessed life. We're ready to get back to doing the things in the way that we think will give us the most pleasure. We're ready to get back to living life as the blessed life. 
The problem with that, obviously, is that ultimately that's not the blessed life. The the ultimate blessed life, the full consummation of the blessed life, the, the perfectly good and glorious life is only presented in the life to come. And for many of us, interestingly, we are impatient to get back to the life of this world, but we are not filled with equal impatience to get to the life of the world to come. Now, some of you are, you're you're impatient for the life to come, and I'm excited for you that you have such great heavenly-mindedness. I also grieve for you because it probably means you're in pretty serious physical pain. But it is intriguing how as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it does present this kind of conundrum to us. It presents a challenge for us where God has been laying out the the victory that is possible in this life that comes in consummation in the end and challenging us to think about it and to prepare for it and to be ready for it and to live in light of that great victory. And chapter 22 kind of ends with this kind of great challenge to put your money where your mouth is. If you think that life to come is so grand, if you believe the words of this book, it's time to really live accordingly. Live with a sense of holy impatience. I'm I'm ready for the blessed life. Chapter 21 explained that blessed life wonderfully in terms of the geography of the new heavens and new earth. Explained it in terms of the geography of the new Jerusalem. It is a place of beauty and brilliance. It's a place where there is no temple anymore for God resides with mankind and mankind with God. It's a place that's marked by the the mediatorial work of Christ, the intercessor going on behalf of the people of God so that the standing is right and good and true so the people of God can say, I belong here because Jesus has accomplished this. And all of the description in chapter 21 is filled with such beauty and such brilliance and such loveliness that, that language doesn't fully capture it. And you get John saying things that are crazy, like it's, it's, it looks like gold, but transparent like glass. I don't know what that means. Chapter 22, it's an odd place, honestly, for a chapter break. The chapter break probably should have come at the end of verse 5, but that's okay. It gives us a good kind of refresher as we start. Chapter 22 begins with the kind of the summary description of the previous chapter, reminding us pictorially what the life to come is like. An angel shows John this kind of geographic portrait of what the blessed life actually looks like. This portrait, while the others might have been fairly complicated, this one is less so. 
It's the center point of the city of God. And you have the Lamb in the middle, residing in glory, sitting on a throne for Jesus as the victor. He is the conqueror. He is the great and mighty God. And flowing from his throne, running kind of down the main avenue of the city, is a river. It is a river that, as best description, as best we can get kind of from the grammar, uh, it's likely, if you've ever, like, if you've ever been like one of the major European cities that has the big kind of, the avenues, the, you know, kind of big pavilions that kind of run the length of the city, something very similar to that. And the, the river runs right down the the center of this promenade or whatever, and the banks of the river and the riverbed itself is probably lined with something to the effect of diamond. So that were the sun to shine on it, it would reflect in brilliance. There is, however, no sun. For the light comes from Christ. So you have this kind of beautiful description of, you can imagine if you were, again, pictorially a a traveler in the city, you would be able to, from anywhere on this promenade, see the glory, the brilliance of the Lamb seated on the throne, and this sparkling, reflecting, refracting, glorious river of light that would point to the throne. If you've ever taken your cell phone and turned the flashlight app on or uh, even a flashlight itself and put it under like a bottle of water, you ever seen that? Ever done that at night? It reflects everywhere. It looks crazy. It's just the, the light reflects off the little waves on the top of the surface. It's, it's lovely. Here you have this river doing the same thing in the heavenly city. And it's explained, oh yeah, by the way, the the glory of Christ is reflected in this river. And why? Because it is the water of life. It's not just any river that flows out. This is the river. The river that provides eternal life for the people of God. The river that nourishes them. The river that strength. It's this language that Jesus used throughout the entirety of his ministry. This is the portrait of eternal life. The blessed life. The good life. Eternal life flows from Jesus. And it is given to his people so that if they were ever thirsty, they could take a cup and have a drink. Anytime. It's interesting that as we look even in the geography of this, this is a reversal of what the garden was originally like. Here we have bookends. Chapter 3 of Genesis is reversed. There they had a tree that they were uh, not supposed to eat of. They do. They have to be thrown out of the garden before they eat of another tree and permanently kind of damn themselves. Here it's this kind of renewal of the portrait. God not far away, but in their midst, seated on a throne in glory, the river of life flowing out from it, and on either side, lining the promenade, the tree of life, which, oh yeah, by the way, yields fruit constantly. It's not one that... 
<clears throat> yields periodically. It's not like our blueberry bushes in our backyard right now where we're starting to see the, the little blueberries getting bigger and bigger. And they're not blue yet. They're still greenish, but you can see the kind of bluish purple tint starting to happen. And we're going to enjoy them because once the birds eat them, they'll be gone forever and we won't ever probably see them ever again. Here, this tree produces fruit constantly. Each month produces fruit So that again, the people of God can partake of this blessed life anytime, all the time, constantly. Even to the description that the leaves of the tree, the the, the blessing attached to this location is so great that it heals the nations. And again, not that there's any need for healing in heaven, but this idea of this continuance of God's blessing for His people. I mean, again, and it doesn't really translate to our minds as easily because we live in the land of grocery stores and Photoshop, but for the people that would have been reading this the first time, this would have been the description of perhaps one of the most beautiful things their mind could conceive of with a permanently stocked source of food and water. They don't have to worry about going to Walmart and no toilet paper or things like that and go to get your favorite food and they're out of it and you got to go to different grocery stores like we're doing right now. No, it, the idea here is that in this presence of God, all of the things that would nourish them are so readily available, there's no lack. And not only are these things that nourish them, but they're things that eternally and spiritually nourish them. Reminded of Jesus, even highlighting this in other places, saying, would you like water that you never thirst again? (laughs) I'd like that water. Well, here it is. Would you like food where you never have to eat again? Again, spiritually speaking, because we're nourished on Christ. Yes, I want that food. In His presence is fullness of blessing. There's no sorrow. There's no grief. There's no sadness. In fact, actually, it goes even a little bit further here in verse 4 where it explains that, oh yeah, by the way, these servants that worship Him, they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. Now this idea of baptism almost even has been intensified where no longer an ownership externally, but an ownership internally. uh, This belongedness to God. Perfect. Blessing forever. And I think maybe as a word of contrast here, we could have conducted an experiment. Now, it would have been hard to conduct via camera and all of you everywhere else. I guess we could have done it in Zoom during Sunday school or something. But to to find the things that we miss the most while we're in our stay-at-home order to find the things that we long for the most to get back to in our lives. What is it that we miss the most? And it's intriguing how easily satisfied we are. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. He's always good for a quote and sometimes a little more challenging for other things, but... 
And he said, the problem with humanity is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they are too weak and too easily satisfied, or at least we think they are. And it's intriguing how we think that chocolate or ice cream or food or money or pleasure or sexuality or any sort of other thing will be an acceptable substitute for this life. Life in the presence of God, filled with the blessing of God, nourished by the life of God. Yeah, chocolate can handle that. Yeah, a new series to binge on Netflix. It's good enough. I mean, it's a close second, I guess. No, how easily satisfied we are. And again, if you don't believe me, look at the new habits you've picked up since we went into quarantine. Think about the new habits you've picked up since the stay-at-home order went into effect and to think about the new things that you've started doing to make yourself feel better and how you spend your time. There's the old saying, idleness is the the devil's playground. You don't believe that we're too easily satisfied. Look at how you've spent your extra hours for those that have had extra hours. Some have not. Some this has been the busiest season they've had in a long time. It's interesting that if you really were to summarize verses 1 through 5, it's a, it's a presentation of geographical blessing. Every bit of the geography there conveys blessing to the people of God and a spiritual intimacy. And again, it is so intriguing to me of what a lovely portrait that is and how slow we are to try to live our lives in light of it. I would imagine that as we begin to kind of really meditate on it and think about it, we, we get to that point where we're like, you know, actually this does sound good. I would really love that. Maybe I can have a little bit of heaven on earth. Maybe I can have a little bit of uh, what this is. Well, there's an interesting thing I think that takes place here. It's my favorite part of the chapter, and I said it the last time this happened. It, it happens twice in the book where verses 8 through 12, John explains to you, he explains numerous times who is, is this writing but gives us this wonderfully human response that has bugged commentators for centuries. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Look, I'm the one that's telling you. Jesus revealed it to me. I'm the one that's been having the visions. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I've done it. But even here at the end, at this glorious portrait of God, the angel standing next to him, John, so overwhelmed, falls down and worships the angel next to him. This is not uh, the angel of the Lord that is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a, uh, I would imagine, quite glorious and quite terrifying, but run-of-the-mill angel. It's an angel. It's a created being. It's not the uncreated second person of the Trinity. You get this great response from the angel. What are you doing? Don't do that. Worship God. Don't worship me. Stop it. What are you doing? But I like that it highlights a good point for us to remember, though, is that you know, even if this, this perfectly blessed life, this eternal life, 
we can't have it here on earth right now because we're not ready yet. I love that here in chapter 22, there's, there's no enemies left. The devil's been destroyed. The evil have been destroyed. At this point, kind of in the portrait, all of the enemies of God have been ruined and cast into God's wrath forever. So the only ones left are people that are either have their name written in the book of life, God himself, or the angels, and John ruins the moment. And I love how it showcases that God's work is not done yet. John, who is a believer, who is a Christian, who has his name written in the book of life, who has the Holy Spirit residing within him, who is a recipient of Christ's work as mediator and intercessor, is not yet perfect because he's not yet dead. And so there's sanctification that has to take place. And I love that kind of in this contrast, you you saw those verses, first five verses, just this glorious portrait of the blessed life in God. But then kind of held in contrast in, in verses 8 through 12, you see that John's not ready yet because God still has work to do in him. This work of sanctification is not yet completed in John. He's still not ready. Even John. And I think that should actually be a great source of comfort for us and honestly also give us a little bit of understanding for how our world is and how we live. You know, were God to take us into heaven in our current condition, uh, well, he loves us too much to do that because he can't because we have that lingering corruption of sin. Instead, what he does is he sanctifies us in this place and then glorifies us, transforms us when we die. But it's intriguing that we forget kind of the, some of the primary mechanisms that God uses to perfect his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus makes that one clear. We're to be sanctified through the scriptures and the study and reading and preaching of them, meditating on them and memorizing them. But it's interesting, the ministry of Jesus was explained very clearly in the New Testament as it was perfected through one thing through suffering. The ministry of the Lord Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And it's intriguing. I mean, he was a man of sorrows. His life was marked with so much spectacular difficulty, even death, the death on the cross. It should give great comfort and great consolation and great encouragement to us, the people of God, as we do wrestle through difficulty. Those of you that have been losing that battle to impatience and have maybe perhaps been a little bit more vocal with your frustrations than you should. Caught yourself yelling at the kids a little bit more than you wanted. 
Or maybe being able to say, well, that command that no unwholesome word proceed from out of my mouth, but only such a word that's useful for edification. Well, I failed that this week. Well, there's good news. God loves you so much that He is sanctifying you. He's preparing you for that glorification process. And He loves you so much, He's having you walk the same path that Jesus did. Not the path to the cross, thank the Lord, but the path of suffering. It's interesting, John's not ready yet for glory. He actually is even in the portrait of the heavenly places, is worshiping the wrong things. And you know what's going to happen? The Lord's going to fix that before he gets there. I mean, there's a, a snarky way to even say this, to say that only perfect people go to heaven. Now, not perfect in this life, but perfect by the time they get there. And that's what's going to happen. John's going to be made perfect. He's going to be sanctified through suffering in the Word right now and then glorified in the end. You should be encouraged. God is still at work in you. He's making you ready. And He's using even your suffering, your frustration, your anxiety and angst, even the things that you get angry about. Remember, God is using them to prepare you for heaven. reshapes how we think about difficulty when we remind ourselves that God is using this to prepare me for heaven, to make me ready to live in that place, to fit me to the culture, values and ethics, the glory of the life to come. The final bit he uses is death. Which is why, one of the many reasons why death is not supposed to hold fear for the saints of God anymore. Because it is simply the entrance into that blessed life now. It's the completion of sanctification. It's the last enemy to be defeated because in it we are victorious and made ready to be with God. You know, honestly, I think the most human answer, if we understand this, would be a, a sense of, of fear and trepidation that follows. If we understand that perfect, blessed life that God has established in the life to come, that perfectly holy life where His people are in His midst, they see His face. And if we examine our own lives today, we recognize that, yeah, we don't belong there. <laughs> not yet. Even as His children, even having the Spirit residing within us, we're not ready yet. The, the great anxiety could be, well, oh no, what's going to happen in the in-between? Oh no, what's going to happen in the in-between? And I love how verses 6 and 7 and verses 13 through 16 answer that with one simple answer. You don't need to be afraid because Jesus is King. 
You don't need to be afraid because Jesus is the dependable Savior. You don't need to be afraid because Jesus wins in the end and in the beginning and every bit in between. He is Jesus. Second person of the triune God, He is the victor. I love how in verse 7 you have uh, the beatitude that John's given. John has given, I haven't highlighted this, but seven beatitudes. This chapter gives beatitudes 6 and 7. Here he explains the person of Jesus through this beatitude form. Look, I am coming soon, Jesus says. It's not up for negotiation. It's not an if or contingent. It's not a maybe. It's going to happen. I am coming soon. Now, your definition of soon doesn't match God's, but that's okay. He's still coming soon. So therefore, blessed is the one who keeps the words because God blesses even in the arrival of Christ Jesus. I love how in 13 through 16, it's actually both of these sections are a rehashing of what Jesus says in chapter 1, but he highlights it again for our weak minds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters of the alphabet. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is God. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. He's grand and great. I love how the Lord has built into us as humans a daily, or I would maybe say nightly reminder of how weak and frail and fragile and limited we are. It's called sleep. Every night, in theory, we remind ourselves that we're not God. That for a moment, we're going to pass out of the consciousness of this place and the world will continue without us for a time. And I love that in theory, a third of our lives is spent with the world motoring on just fine without me. Reminding us that God's in charge and I'm not. Reminding us that we have such limited horizons, we can't see the future, we barely understand the past, and the present is confusing as all get out half the time. But God is not limited. Reminding us that there was a time when I was not. Just go back 41 years can't do that with God. He's outside of time. He is the first and the last. And the love that it explains this relationship that God has with His people here in 14, even building to this final beatitude, acknowledging what God is doing in His saints. You don't have to be afraid of the days that we live in. Why? Because blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who rest in Christ Jesus that have His atoning, redeeming work given to them. Blessed are those that are in Christ. Why? 
because they're the ones that are going to have the right to the tree of life and they're able to enter the city by the gates. Meaning they have all of the rights and privileges and joys of the people who belong. This city that was described in the beginning of the chapter is here acknowledged as this is where the people of God belong. They get to make themselves themselves at home because it is where they belong. A number of years ago, Nikki and I moved into a house, and uh, we were meeting the neighbors, which was fun, and uh, met their you know, parents, met the kids and everything, and then all of a sudden we lost one of the kids. I was like, well, this is awkward. Looked for a little bit, couldn't find the kid until finally we were like, well, let's go back inside. We'll get shoes or whatever, you know, go find the, find the boy. And... It, the son had just walked into our house and was in the back playing with the toys. Just made himself at home. Let himself in the house by himself. Walked to the back of the house by himself. Got the toys out by himself and was playing all by himself in the house. Didn't tell anybody. He was short. It was an awkward moment. Now if it was my child that had done that, I would have no issue with it because it's my child. My child belongs there. This was a neighbor kid that didn't belong to me, that didn't belong there. He didn't have the privilege, he didn't have the right to do that. Now, of course, we welcomed him after that. What's being acknowledged here in verse 14 is the Lord saying, look, you belong in this place. You belong in the life to come. You're welcome to just come in and start playing with all the toys. You're welcome to start eating all the food. You don't have to ask before you go to the pantry. It's your pantry. You belong here. Be at peace. I love how Jesus answers that kind of question of, of, oh no, should I be fearful of this kind of in-between, this distance between that perfection that will happen, that I'm not yet, and the reality of who I am. And Jesus says, "Be, be at peace. I will make it work. You will belong in the life to come. So I think we can end with a, a pretty easy question. Well, what do we do now? If we know this life to come is going to be glorious, if we know that we're not yet made ready for it, but Jesus will accomplish it, what do I do now? What do I do as a father or a mother, as an employer or an employee, as a student or a person who runs a home? What do I do? How do I live in the meantime? And it's interesting how in verses 17 through 21, we have a, a number of different options, uh, answers that are given. One, verse 18, is a bit surprising, uh, but not completely unsurprising for the time that this was written, is to say, don't tinker with the book. Don't change the words of the book. Listen to what God has said, and don't kind of rebrand it. Don't alter it. Don't change it. And I would simply say, this is a bigger danger for us as evangelicals than we might like to think. Not because we're ever going to catch ourselves going, well, I don't like this verse of the Bible. Here, let me get my pencil, and I'll just you know, scratch that part. We're not going to do that. No more likely what we'll do is we'll stick our fingers in our ears and ignore parts of the Bible to change, to fit the things that we want to do. 
And again, I would encourage you, think about those sins that you know you have, those, those ones that you have hidden away inside your heart, to think about how you've redefined how bad they are. You've changed even in your own mind God's Word. But verses 17 and 20 are the ones that I would like to kind of end on. (laughs) What do we do in the meantime? Well, we receive the blessing that Jesus gives. See, this is the heart of the gospel is that Jesus has accomplished salvation and he offers it freely. We have to accept it on his terms and just seek to know him and to love him, to receive what he has given if you're thirsty, go to Christ. Now, again, that's obviously not meaning literally, ooh, I need some water, my mouth is a little dry. I would look at this from the perspective of if your heart is filled with longing, unfulfilled desire, take it to Jesus. He can meet any desire that you might have. Any unfulfilled longing, or worse yet, a longing that you think is fulfilled with something earthly and awful, or earthly and good. Christ is the only one who satisfies all our longings. So really, that gap between that glorious life to come and being made ready for it and the shortcomings that we have now, it's met in Jesus. And our task is to get on board by receiving the work that He has done meditating on it, dwelling on it. And I would just end with this application is pay attention to your wants, your desires, that when you want something really badly, and I would suggest the things that we want the most are the things we refuse to talk about. If it's something that you're willing to look up on Amazon, it's probably not something that you actually want. The desire to purchase might be something that you want, but that's not the issue. Think about what you want and bring those wants to Jesus so that he can fill them. Because guess what? He is coming soon. And when he returns, he's going to fulfill all our desires and get rid of all the bad ones. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait until then to get started on that. May it be that we, his people, even now, would delight in our union with Christ Jesus, who has saved his people, in whose name we pray. Amen. Father, thank you for this sweet, sweet promise. Fill us with Christ Jesus. Amen.